Hello and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast, where we talk about the intersection of technology and sports and entertainment. We've got a really interesting chat lined up today with some excellent guests to talk about attendance, fan attendance at events. But first, as ever, if you like what you hear, please do make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Go to our website, sportsloft.co, and subscribe to our newsletter, and make sure to follow us on socials at sportsloft.hq. So today to talk about a variety of topics, including uh, the bounce back from the pandemic, ticket sales, hospitality, uh, and a variety of other topics, we've got two industry experts. Uh, Fantastic to have them both on board. First, I'd like to welcome Nathan Homer. Nathan is the Chief Commercial Officer of the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, which is the site of London's 2012 Olympic Games. Uh, Nathan has had a storied career. He was previously at um, Now TV and Sky. He was Chief Commercial and Marketing Officer of the European Tour, Head of Global Sponsorships and Partnerships at Barclays. And prior to that, he held global roles at Procter & Gamble, including running their Olympic program. So a lot of stuff to to share and to dig into there. Nathan, welcome to the Sports Off Podcast. Thanks, Yanni. Great to be here. Um, You reminded me how old I am. Was, I always try to say it's a tough paper round, but no, I've seen probably seen the industry from a few different angles, which has been interesting over the uh, over the journey. Certainly, uh, and uh, that's that's a problem that I find myself facing often in terms of being reminded how old I am. It's fun. Our other guest uh, from the Sports Loft member company Fivo, Ari Dai, who is the founder and CEO of Fivo. Fivo is obviously obviously the social shopping cart, and I'll let Ari tell you a little bit more about that. But uh, Ari has a roster of clients who include almost all of Major League Soccer, NBA, and NFL, uh, and has raised in excess of $100 million from its uh, Series A, B, and C rounds and continues to grow from strength to strength. You may not be able to see this on the podcast if you're listening, but uh, Ari is joining us from St. Bart's. Uh, so we are honored to, to welcome him, sporting a glorious tan and a beautiful linen shirt. Mr. Dai, welcome back to the Sports Loft Podcast, I should say. Thanks, Yanni. It's great to be here. Uh, it's always great to be back. I love what you guys are doing at Sports Loft, and and clearly if you've been um, a big proponent and champion of all your endeavors, I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. And uh, and right back at you. So listen, just a scene set a little bit for everybody listening. Nathan, why don't you just give us a, a, a quick snapshot of Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, obviously the uh, the Olympic Stadium, and what you do there on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, thanks, Yanni. I mean, in a, in a nutshell, you know, the organization here is responsible for delivering the long-term legacy of the Games. And I think, you know, legacy to do with sports events is a, an oft-used term. Uh, and, you know, I think we're lucky enough to, I think, genuinely be delivering one. And I think, you know, if you ask the IOC, whilst they'd probably never never say it, you know, they I think secretly they would admit, you know, London really is the legacy they hold for everyone else to look at. We host a huge number of people here every year who come and see what we're, we're doing um, at the park and around the estate. And, you know, put simply, it's a huge regeneration project for East London. You know, the park is 564 acres, um, and that's just the, the piece we sort of run. And then there's obviously the surrounding environments as well. And, you know, the real journey here over the last 10 years has been significant further master planning and development of housing, business districts, uh, commercial space, retail space. There's quite a famous film studio at the bottom end of the park, which most people don't know about. 
and then there's obviously the venues um, and the sports and the, the open spaces as well. So, you know, the, the park is on is probably 10, 15 years into a 30-year journey. I mean, that's how long major regeneration of parts of cities takes. It's well on its way. Um, it's incredible when people come here who sometimes haven't been here for 10 years. They're gobsmacked by what's here. Um, you know, we've got the biggest new cultural district in Britain and Europe opening, you know, as of this year with the V&A, Sadler's Wells, yeah. BBC Music, London College of Fashion. I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable the people that are here. And my job really is has been to come in and probably start to cast a more commercial lens across all the assets we have here and how we do business. And I'll certainly echo that as a as an East London resident for for a long time, certainly since 2005, seeing the transition and things that have happened at uh, at Olympic Park and uh, the upgrade that has happened, not just within the confines, let's say, of the Olympic Park itself, but the wider area as well, has been truly wonderful to see. So, looking forward to more from that. Turning to Fivo and Ari, Ari. Give us a give us a quick snapshot. I, I described Vivo obviously as the social cart, but it, it is so much more than just that. Tell us about um, kind of where you guys are at now and uh, and where you're going. Sure, Yanni, um, appreciate it. You know, our core thesis six years ago when we started the business was that while the content is incredibly important, most people post the MySpace, Facebook, mobile camera on your phone age really like to go to events as much to absorb the content as it is to meet people, hang out with their friends, take that Instagram moment, that TikTok video. So FIBO's mission is super simple. We've always felt that the transactional process at the end of the content discovery is inherently solitary. For example, if I wanted to take the three, four of us to a live event, uh, what do I have to do historically? I've got to call you Yanni, call you Nathan, who's in, who's out, who's bringing their significant other. And I'd actually have to sort of pre-coordinate the group and then go into those old solitary checkouts and actually buy all of your tickets for you so that we can you know, be grouped and seated together. That's the fundamental model that we wanted to disrupt and transform, which is how can I get one person to go in, decide they want to go to an event, name their group, you know, it's Yanni and Nathan's crazy night out. And from there, just simply buy my one or two tickets, but then be able to invite my friends along that journey and not have to pre-coordinate everybody, right? Really the core crux of what we do is we add a ton of new features and um, tools to the primary ticketing system so that the sales and marketers at the major, you know, arenas, sports teams, artists, and content rights holders can figure out how they want to basically bundle, package, and group different offers together to attract those types of consumers and and fans into the to the bandage. And you know, we launched the business six years ago, and and we've been fortunate that in North America, at least, we've grown to about a ninety percent share of the meaningful logos. So most of MLB, NBA, NHL, NFL, pretty much all of the minor league teams, two hundred NCAA programs. We're now getting heavily involved in the tours and concert business with Live Nation, and with several others like Feld Entertainment and Cirque du Soleil. And, you know, uh, I've spent a ton of time in London and we're now actually making our entree there. So hopefully we can make it easy for people to get together, provide more sort of visitors and fans to come into the events and help, you know, be a creative to be ecosystem overall. And certainly, uh, certainly what FIVO has done is contributed to the first topic that I want to talk about, which is the, the, the bounce back in attendance. And, you know, last time, Ari, that we spoke, we were talking, uh, I believe it was in the middle of the pandemic. 
And, you know, you were talking about how FIFA was positioning itself as a ticketing technology business to address the fact that ticketing was non-existent and, you know, where you were going. Now, 2022 has seen um, record audiences. In fact, uh, uh, two circles issued a report recently saying that professional sport broke uh, the cumulative record for attendance uh, in 2022, which, which, is, which is great news. So from, from, from your perspective, um, and, and, and let's start with Nathan, because obviously the Olympic Park hosts a number of significant events. There's obviously the Olympic Stadium, which hosts Premier League football with West Ham. I will, I will give a, a, a nod of the hat to the London Lions, who play at the Copper Box Arena as well uh, in the BBL, uh, and a number of other regular and one-off events. How have you seen this bounce back in 2022 and how are you looking to capitalize on it and do you think it will continue into 2023? Yeah, I mean, we've seen very strong bounce back. I mean, it's pretty heartbreaking when you run uh, a place with some such incredible venues and see them sit pretty much dormant for, you know, six to 12 months. Um, the bounce back's been remarkable. When you think of the stadium, you know, you alluded the Premier League, we've actually just increased the attendance. So working closely with West Ham, We've gone from 60,000 to 62,500. So, you know, that's the best proof you could possibly have of, you know, the need for, for more capacity. Uh, but the other events we've had there, you know, this year we had Green Day, the Chili Peppers, you know, we had Monster Trucks. We've had all sorts of things. Next year we've got the baseball, the athletics, and both this year sales were great and advanced sales for next year. I mean, just two stats. I think the baseball's ahead of where it was in 19. And the athletics is the highest number it's already been. I think it's just past 30,000 already for an event that's, you know, next July. So, you know, we're seeing continually strong attendance. As you said, same at the Copper Box. Basketball had its highest ever attendance at Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, I think they had four, four and a half thousand, yep. I think, nearly. Netball continues to go well there. We have esports there, which continues to sell out. Boxing continues to be successful. So, I think the interesting thing for us is we have an awful lot of different activities that appeal to an awful lot of different audiences, but we see the same trend across them all. Right. They're all they're all doing very well and they've come back well. And even in the with the cost of living starting to kick in, we're, we're continuing to see people want to want to come. Um, and the same for our community events. We obviously use the spaces in the park for for all sorts of other events and. You know, we had our biggest ever community day last year with more people coming out and attending than, than we've ever had. And, you know, that that's a much lower level type of activity. But just to put that in context, we're talking about 25,000 people. So it's a pretty big community day. Mm. But again, you know, people very willing to get out and be together uh, and enjoy time together. And the park during the pandemic was a, a bit of a natural haven, obviously, for people to come and use and enjoy uh, as an open okay. space. And... We've seen that continue um, as well, which has been great. So, yeah, we definitely see that uh, that continue. The only thing that we're very conscious of overall is making sure we do offer things across that broadest possible range of audiences uh, and passion points. And we're very conscious, particularly because of some of the communities around the park, that they're diverse and that the, there's a diversity yeah. of price point, you know, for people to enter into as well from, you know, literally free activity in the open spaces to things in the park i mean you know, the stadium we just announced uh burner boy who's the first uh african artist to play in a major stage yep. so you know that'd be a classic example of the sort of event that we want to bring in that 
bring something again different here but which we know can connect strongly to some of our local communities so so yeah across the board you know very strong which given the economic environment is arguably surprising but you know proof of what what i think two circles has report and and other reports have said and you bring up an interesting point with the economic environment and kind of how how we can expect that to continue right um ari vivo certainly not the only reason for this potential bounce back but certainly one of the things that could be argued to be uh accretive to sales um you're talking to people who are constantly challenged with season ticket sales single single game ticket sales are people nervous about the economic environment now uh, especially compared to this incredible bounce back in 2022 or are are, are they seeing um bulletproof quality to live sport and live entertainment yeah, I think it's squarely the latter, but I will subset major tours for a second. If you think about the Great Recession of 2008, you actually had sports attendance go up. And the primary driver of that is if you're under economic strain, you're probably not going to take the expense of family vacation abroad and you're going to stay more local. And sporting events and live events is a great consumption point. You still have to get the kids out of the house and, and give, provide them entertainment. So I think people will stay closer to home, and that's an evidently story. Great, yeah, it's an evidently great for local live events, right? Coming out of the pandemic, you obviously had pent up demand. So the question is, can you know can that continue? We're seeing from our clients. Forget FIBO's sort of utilization. We're just seeing generally from our client base, they're having the best years ever. I mean, I think twenty three right now is turning out to be better than twenty two. The post sort of, you know, crypto bubble, recessionary headwinds, inflation headwinds are not at all sort of impacting at least pro sports and even minor league sports. Some of the big concert tours might say, hey, you know, I might sit it out this year. So you might see some supply contraction from, you know, concert artists. But even there, look at what happened to Taylor Swift. Nobody is sitting on their hands and saying, I don't want to be able to see her this year, right? So... I think live events this year are going to be stronger than ever. I think this idea of the pent-up demand sort of cascading into 23 is going to absolutely happen. And, you know, I'll add a couple of demographic shift points to this. If you think about what happened during the pandemic, you had a lot of baby boomers who had season tickets as a status symbol. That sort of began to pop and deteriorate pre-pandemic, but it really accelerated during the pandemic which means there's a little bit more democratization of tickets, which means the sports teams, the venues became more creative about how they're going to package and bundle offers. So they became a little bit more digitally savvy. It was basically like a big sort of push to get more modern, uh, which obviously has great effects when you think about the demographic shifts. You have 25 million fewer baby boomers in 2026 looking out than you did you know, uh, three, four years ago. So you basically have this right now, what's happening is baby boomers are on the decline in terms of their overall consumption and buying and millennials and Gen Z are increasing as a share of the number of consumers in the marketplace that happened in the last two years that, that, you know, it's been trending that way, but it's now diverging where baby boomers are sort of dropping out and millennials or Gen Z are, are sort of on the incline. Now, you might say those two new generations are going to basically evolve into sort of the, you know, income levels of boomers, but their consumption patterns are completely different. Baby boomers were about status Mm. symbols, season plans, the big Mercedes, the big house. 
Millennials and Gen Z have every convenience at their fingertips. They're non-committal. They're not going to buy 40 game season plans or 80 game, you know, MLB plans. So, but they're still going to live events. And I think that's just causing a fundamental shift of who you market to, but the demand is bigger than ever. And how's that marketing shift moving? What are you seeing from clients in order to be able to take advantage of that shift and still project a bigger 2023, bigger 2024, 25 going forwards? I mean, the first phase was really about how, I mean, this was basically like the blocking and tackling the basics is, okay, how do we go from an analog world where we were smiling and dialing for, for sort of ticket sales to how do we, you know, reach audiences across the digital platforms where they're consuming content? Well, that's, you know, obviously the basic. I think the real transformation that's happening now is about content and the in-venue experience, which is, you know, more expensive, by the way, right? So it's one thing to say, I'm not going to, you know, advertise on TV. I'm going to advertise on Instagram. It's a whole nother thing to say, you know, maybe the person who's coming to the event, ultimately, except for the ultra hardcore fan, doesn't really care about the outcome of the game. They don't really care if like my home team wins or loses anymore. I mean, they do, but they don't go home crying about it. Like you and our generation, listen, I'll be 48 in a month. You know, when the, when the Bulls would, would lose and Michael Jordan missed the game-winning shot, I would cry. I don't think it's like that anymore. I think people go to the events to meet their next boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, have a good time, take the selfies, you know, post on TikTok, post on Instagram. So what that means is, is that the environment has to change to accommodate that. That's why all of a sudden you see like these areas where it's full of flowers and florals and we can take an Instagram. Um, that's fundamentally, I think, the big change that content and rights holders are dealing with, which is I have to make investment into maybe changing, you know, my hard seat into an area where it's more of a bar, more of a social atmosphere. I think those will continue to, to sort of happen. And, and I know Nathan probably speak to this way better than I could because I'm just a software dork, but he's actually dealing with how do you provide like great experiences at the venue? He's got the really hard job in the equation. Um, but I fundamentally that like team performance drives a lot of the attendance. That's going to remain true, but it's going to become less of a, you know, a variable. And how do you, Nathan, to that point, how do you differentiate a venue? Uh, how do you think about that as somewhere that you want to keep attracting a fan base and be able to capture that discretionary dollar of, oh, I will spend my money to go to Olympic Park, whether it is to a sporting event or to experience the venue or to spend time there. What do you what do you think about in that context? Yeah, I mean, I think what Ari says is one hundred percent true. And the interesting thing is that I think all the pandemic has done is potentially maybe accelerate a trend that was there already. I mean, when I was at Barclays and uh, we opened the the Barclays Center in New York, which I'm sure Ari's been to uh, and worked around. Yes. That was one of the first venues that really took a different view of how it was going to deliver its food and beverage offering around the courts <laughs> with a view that people weren't just going to sit in their seats and watch the game. They wanted to come and sit in a lounge and watch it on the screen. And it seemed crazy because you were going, well, surely they're going to want to sit in their seat that's literally 100 yards away. But they didn't. They built a totally different type of sort of lounge experience, uh, which was really revolutionary at the time, but I think was you know, really foresaw this shift of, as Ari described it, you know, he called it, I think, the ultra fans. We call it the sports passionates, yeah? Mm -hmm. There's people who just want the comfort the action, but they're becoming a smaller group. And obviously the opportunity, I think, the sports business has had for a while is, you know, they've got all sorts of names, but, you know, the, the sports eventer, the social eventer, the, you know, 
whatever segment you want to put them in. But, you know, this massively bigger audience that just want to go and have a good time out with their friends, their family, their loved one, whoever the, with their kids, whoever the, 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 the people are. And what you need to do is offer them, you know, a different type of experience where they get a more rounded kind of day or evening or afternoon out. And that's certainly one thing we've really seen come out in the, the audience insight we've got in the past year or two. It's that desire that when people come here, they're saying, I really want to come for longer and do more around the event. Now, I think that's partly because of the park. You know, it's a natural place to think, I wonder if I'm going there for X, I can also do things around it. But we're seeing a real pull for people to come and say, I want to make this more than just the two hours in the venue or more than just the the concert that's in there. I want to come earlier and what's there that I can experience and enjoy. So, And that naturally flows through into... Well, even to attract them in the first place to the main event, I need to have that already built and already built into the offering. That's sort of probably what we're working on hardest with uh, promoters and events that are coming to the park to say, how do we build out that offer with you so that from when you first go to market, there's that broader offer that will appear to the broader audience. You know, that they can always do their ultra passionate fan. You know, they know how to get to them and they'll buy purely on the basis of the quality of the event. It's it's actually the 60, 70, 80% opportunity audience that we're working harder with them um, to fill out. And and interestingly, one of the things we're seeing, and I don't know if, um, how, it, how this flows, but we're seeing more people come in early. So, you know, the early bird type value proposition seems to be working well and with as i say athletics have been an example where we've seen a very high take up of a hard early ticket push but then we're seeing people come in late and it's interesting it's sustaining that ticket flow through the the i call it the the long mid period Mm -hmm. actually seems to be the emerging challenge and i don't know if that's a value piece i.e there's good value to be had by committing early and i know i want to do something good let's get it in the diary and then i'll make a later decision nearer the time but it's that it's that midpoint sort of continuation that we're seeing to be maybe more challenging but the, the big shift for us is definitely how do we pull more of what's available around the estate and we're lucky in that regard so we, we can try and leverage it to make that come true and there's certainly that's true of I call it the normal punter buying individual tickets and we're also seeing the same in our sort of in the hospitality areas as well. Mm. Yanni and Nathan I'll add to that. Go ahead. So yeah I wanted to add to that I mean we really underappreciate still the emergence of the phone and the camera because i think what happened especially with social pre the phone and camera we would to your point nathan go to an event we would have a great time we would take pictures still we'd create these lifelong memories with our friends but we were still fans of the content i think when the social channels arose and that phone uh merged with the camera people were now able to create their own fan bases by basically image grabbing and video grabbing that moment. That was a transformational psychological shift in how consumers behave at these events. We're no longer fixated on Mick Jagger sort of shaking his thing and doing his thing on stage or LeBron dunking over people. It became about, look at me while I'm here and I can go build my own fan base. The reason we've got to think rethink sort of how we attract that person is they're very motivated by the validation that they get from their own fans it's fascinating it's no longer about the fan it's about the fans fans which is a very different dynamic that we're dealing with 
2023. Yeah. And I don't think we talk about that. No. It's highly psychological. It's all about validation. You know, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a psychological nudge that we've able to tap into. I'll give you a, a, a really simple example of that. We, have, we analyze where on social where people who've been at the park are posting. Uh-huh. We find more people post from outside the venues than inside. Yeah. Now, again, yeah. here, they're posting with the Olympic Stadium, the Arsenal Vitale Orbit, or the Copper Box, or the Aquatics. Yeah, they are iconic buildings. So there's, yeah. a, there's a logical reason why they're attractive to, to take, but I think it builds on that. I, people are showing, I am here, look where I am. Uh-huh. And they're often not following it up with, and here's a picture of the event I'm actually at. Exactly. Or if they are, exactly. it's not that it's not what they're leading with. You know, there's more photos and things shared. We've got a spot actually as you walk into the park where there's a particularly good um, place to take a photo. And if you stand in our office, actually, you can look down. All you see, all any of our day, is just this continual flow of people taking and posting the same pictures. So, which very much backs up it. It's about where I am and look at me, not necessarily look at them the performer mm. which which is very interesting in the context of what you do ari right because what what you're doing is offering uh, an opportunity for fans to gather around uh to gather around a uh unique experience together uh, and so it becomes about that group um how are you seeing that flow between the individual's experience and the fans fan but then congregating as a group around a shared experience yeah and so it's it's mixed it's all over if you think about like the festival space uh which i also think was a big catalyst for how content consumption changed which again wasn't you didn't have one main headliner you had multiple you had multiple stages and it really became about the fan sort of being circumscribed by all of that experience but also taking that selfie and creating their own sort of networks and fan bases our, our viewpoint is super simple is that all those people are advocates and it's different, Yanni. Like you still have, um, if you look at live event attendance, it's up across all the demographics, boomers, millennials, Gen Z. There's not been a tidal shift, the tidal wave shift in which one's consuming more, but they are consuming differently. We still have within FIBO, just like the single buyer who's probably older, more affluent, higher net worth, higher discretionary income, not doing a lot of sharing. You've got the 23-year-old who can get 300 people to also buy tickets for Bonnaroo. It's fascinating. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, it's not one person, by the way, inviting 299 others. It's one person inviting another seven. Those seven each going on to invite five or six. Somebody in that group uh, maybe doesn't invite anybody else, but somebody gets 50 other people. You see these, like, what we call co-captains, which is, Yanni, you might be the instigator of the group. Say, let's all go to um, Lollapalooza. You invite Nathan and you invite me, I might be passive. Nathan can go in and get 50 other people. So all of a sudden you start seeing, like, actually Nathan is the real motivator and mobilizer in the book. We're seeing that now more and more and more and more as the sports teams that we enable, basically saying, like, wait a minute, if I put up cool offers, I'm going to attract that younger demo that likes to share with other people because they want the validation. It's even less about I want to actually hang out with other people. So I want to show I'm a baller. I'm cool. Like people come and, and kind of do what I want to do. It's it's becoming more and more um, engaged since we've progressed in six years ago. It's fascinating. Yanni, can I pick up on a couple? Yeah, of- yeah, please. All right, so yeah, please go. Now, one um, that point about who's the instigator um, is really key. Yes, and I remember, you know, I think 
One of the things we're trying to find with the data and with the, as you said, I mean, the platform Fever has is probably a perfect way to do it. But um, if you can find who those people are, um, can you can you engage with them? And actually, we used to say, can you reward them? I how do I show I appreciate what you're the doing? Trick. Okay, yeah. and, and, and it's an honest chat. Yeah, it's I organized this thing. I can see you've instigated and brought people along. If you do it again, I'm really happy to reward you in whatever way you feel is appropriate. But Trying to find those people is obviously difficult, but I think it's a great insight that we certainly, uh, I've tried at, uh, in the past and it's something we're looking at here. And I mean, it's kind of a sort of who's the VIPs amongst that that group or whatever you want to call them. I mean, the second piece, which drives you know back to that, what do people want at an event? What do they want to take away? What can you provide to help them say, that was a wonderful experience. I go back when I was at the tour and we started saying, look, you know, how many people want to turn up and take photos of golfers standing on a golf course? It's probably not the most exciting photo, you know, unless you're an ultra fan. We started saying, now, what can we provide that meets that need of, look, I've sold you a social day out. Come and have a fantastic afternoon and evening with music on, with whatever. You know, and you get into, can I give you either static things that provide a great photo opportunity? That you stand around, it's fun, it's whatever. I mean, uh-huh. one of the best ones I ever saw was Pim's. They just put one of these, you know, really large deck chairs with steps that people could literally get on. They yeah. take the step. Every single person that came in, their group sat on this massive double deck chair and had the photo, and then were posting it up. I mean, it was everywhere. Um, all simple activities people can do that they'll video and post. And you know, we used to say, you know, "Why are we doing this?" And you go, "Well, one, you people are doing your marketing for you. They're creating awareness that your event." is a great event, it's great fun, and it's not just about the core. You know, I always used to say, getting the core is easy. It's not, but you know, you should always be able to get your core. It's that much bigger circle you want to get to, and you're reaching their friends of friends of friends saying, hey, I saw you went to the golf. I'd never thought of going there, but it looked a great day out. All I saw was a picture of you doing this, the music. Did you see any golf? And they go, actually. You act me at Tim's. I love Tim's in it. Are you kidding? I love Tim's cups. This is the best. Yeah. Yeah. So, so close of that, of course, is it's the perfect way to bring sponsor activation together. Yeah, if you can find activations that just enhance the experience and sponsors can legitimately That's right. or probably a bit <laughs> can be a bit tangential, put their name on, it can give <laughs> the sponsor value, you know, at your event because there's people, you know, doing so that they think this is Good value. I'm enjoying doing it. Hey, I'm not too bothered if it's got, in that case, Pims on the, the deck chair. I mean, it made sense because <laughs> obviously there was a Pims garden next to it. But, you know, and, and yeah, I think you're starting to see more and more brands think like that. It doesn't just have to be about what do we deliver? What's the linear version? Do I sell more? Yeah. Let's just be part of the experience and we'll get a benefit, you know, from that. That's right. And that's certainly something that I remember you were very keen on when you were at Barclays, Nathan. We, we, we spoke about quite a lot in terms of activations around the O2, the Barclays ATP World Tour Finals, as it then was, obviously, with the Premier League as well, enhancing fans' experience. Um, speaking of enhancing fans' experience and providing uh, those uplift, uh, uplift opportunities and, uh, uh, and moving forward, Nathan, you were recently interviewed for an article in, in the Evening Standard about the evolution of sports hospitality but with a specific focus on, on the, the, the London Stadium and, and the Olympic Park. Um, and the title was, Is the Party Over for Hospitality? 
the rise of premium economy in the match day box, which which is a, a fascinating thought, right? Because we as, you know, 45, uh, 45 plus or 27 in, in Nathan's case, um, are, are have a very, very, I think, fixed idea of what hospitality is, which is you sit down, you have a, a legend talk to you, you eat, you have a good day. Um, but speaking about this new audience, this new uh, and, and diverse audience, they want all very, very different experiences. They want to engage in a, in, in a much more real way. So, um, and Ari, you were talking about that as well. You guys obviously get involved in, in, in sales of all sorts. How are you able to work with your rights holders to potentially design the right things that are going to hit those instigators and get the best out of the platform that you guys provide? I'm happy to tackle that one. First, I think Nathan, you're right. At Barclays, I think you're a catalyzer, a catalyzer and a catalyst for how venues rethink things. In terms of premium hospitality, I look at Las Vegas and the transformation they had about 15 years ago when they started bringing in world-class DJs. You start bringing in the Tiestos or all the, they rethought, how do we bring a brand new audience to Vegas? Great point. And remember nightclubs back in the day, in our day, was you stand behind the velvet rope and if you were hot or dressed well, they chose you to come in. Las Vegas transformed that. They said, we don't care about that. Are you willing to buy a $5,000 VIP table where we serve you a, you know, what's cost us $80 from, you know, their liquor distributor and mark it up to 800, a bottle of, you know, champagne or, you know, a bottle of vodka. And my thesis on all of this is if content rights holders uh -huh. don't rethink that hospitality is no longer going to be about a more sort of classic three-star Michelin experience or two-star Michelin and really start thinking about it as like, how do I get the 27-year-old who wants to party with his friend, not belligerent party, I'm not talking about they're gonna like go, go nuts, but they're gonna buy, you know, overpriced tequila, vodka, champagne. They're gonna have that baller moment where they're taking photographs and they're able to attract, you know, their next significant other. Let's, let's be real, and I know we don't like to talk about this, but a lot of the things we do are about, you know, meeting our, our match, right? our next boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. Like, how do I get social validation out of an experience? When we did the uh, lounge areas that we sponsored at Circuit of the Americas, you know, my creative team came to me and said like, we're gonna put these white top tables around. And I said, no, we're not doing that. I want it to feel like I'm going to Annabelle's or Five Hartford or I'm going to Soho House, bring in great lounge sofas, put in like Persian rugs, like go crazy. And you know, obviously the rights holders sort of tamed us hey. a little bit. But the idea was you're coming there to lounge and sip your tequila and have a great time. And I think we all have to start thinking that way. I really do. It's a different demographic we're going after. Go to Las Vegas on a Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and think about what they're doing. Go to Paris, go to Rasputin, the nightclub there on a Saturday night, and look how they're trying to attract a great clientele. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Definitely. Yeah, but I think it's interesting that um, from my view, sports lagged behind because it's stuck a bit in the hospitality looks like this, when actually it's not the hardest clue in the world. You look at what the F&B right. entertainment world is doing and you say, well, there's the trend because these, these people That's know right. what they're doing and the ones that have been as successful yep. are doing different things. So it's yes. called, I don't think it's rocket science what you might want to consider following. I mean, I, I go back to the golf again, you know, the Ryder Cup in 2018, it was in Paris. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to say, 
oh, well, this is all going to be Michelin, high-end, white sheets, everything else. There was absolutely a market for that. Yeah. We had a phenomenal third-floor lounge that was three-star Michelin, you know, several thousand pounds a day, unbelievable. Yes. There was a market for that. But what we really discovered, and I think it was a real changing yes. point, was in the run-up to that, this idea of, you know, call it, you call it the ladder. There's everything from a standard ticket right up to there. And there's people that sort of want to come in and are willing to pay for it, different experiences, probably all the way through. And, you know, the real challenge is to identify where's the sufficient scale to create a product to put in. Because you're not going to create, you know, 25 products probably, but where's there enough scale? And, you know, what we discovered was there were plenty of, I think, the private buyer versus the corporate buyer. I'm willing to pay extra. I've got the cash to pay extra. I want to bring, you know, we saw a shift to much smaller groups than big corporate groups. It was a treat. It was a once every four year outing or, you know, it was, you know, just people with the money to say, hey, actually, I'm going to, to pay out. And we came up with a very nice graduated scheme there that, you know, comes as all good things do from inside. We went and spoke to loads of fans who were going to go and said, what, what would interest you? And some of them just said, I hate it that when it's cold, you're outside, there's nowhere to get, go. I literally just want a tent where you can buy food and drink. I don't want it to be free. I don't want it to be served. I just want somewhere that I could sit down inside. And we were like, yeah. right. We came up with an offering. And I was thinking, yeah. I can't believe people are going to pay for this. But, you know, it, the classic, it was a cons customer insight. We acted on it. It sold out super quickly. And people loved it. It gave them exactly the thing that for them, they were worried about or annoyed them with that, that day out. And, you know, I've followed that same sort of thought all the way up. Mm -hmm. And I think most sports and most venues can apply a similar rationale to, you know, what is that right ladder? What are the right scalable products that you can put in that people will, you know, respond mm -hmm. to? And that will be different by sport. You know, what someone wants when they come into the Ryder Cup won't be exactly the same at a football stadium. And we, we don't see that, you know, the, the products we're looking at building aren't the same at the different venues and they're not the same for the different sports. And the piece in the standard, which was looking at the, the big deck we've put on one end of the ground is a good example. You know, for, for football, we may well just use that as a premium, um, a premium ticket where people can come in. There's a great space literally in the bowl where they can all get a beer and maybe an easy bite to eat and literally then just move to a seat, you know, at the very last minute. They don't have to be out the ground, you know, struggling with the, you know, the crowds. Um, for something like monster trucks, yeah. it might be a VIP experience where you've literally got a truck parked on it and drivers in there and, you know, people are hosting at a really high level because you can stand and watch the action and you could deliberately build the motorbike kicker right in front of it so you've got the best view of the house or they're even taking the bikes off it and down the ramp or, so it, it's more creating a, a large space that, you know, for different events can serve different types of hospitality or, you know, I call it ticket. I always call it ticket plus. Yeah, because hospitality is just ticket with extra stuff. Um, yeah. And or we can use it 365. That's right. You know, however hard our events team work, if you take the stadium, we will never have more than 35 events a year. They're major events. That gives us 330 days a year to say, what can we do with this space? Now, traditional hospital bases, some are more usable than others. This yeah. one, we're saying there's loads of different things we can do here, you know, pretty much 
you know, every day of the year with different business or customer audiences. So I think that that's another sort of a secondary thought, which is how are you designing your spaces so that you can use them not just on event day, but they're actually viable, attractive commercial spaces the rest of the time. Well, that flexibility is a really interesting point, isn't it? Especially to what we were talking about earlier with the way that um, new audiences want to experience their ticket plus, right? They, the day of, um, to Ari's point, you know, you're, you're going in order to have that Instagram moment, you're going in order to potentially meet your next, uh, your next mate, you're going in order to uh, socialize and have a social experience. So maybe the space of the 12 box or the 15 box or even the 24 box is starting to get behind us. So it's about that flexibility. It's about that optionality to be able to do um, different things. And I think, Kelly, that's why it, it always in the end comes down to investment and cost. One of the problems menus have got is if they've got the old model that was built, paid for, as in bricks and mortar, yep. not so easy to shift to the new model. You know, and now when, and I think it's why you're starting to see this quite dramatic pull apart in new venues. And the U.S. has opened some incredible new stadiums in the past uh, few years. You know, they look—they're literally almost like they're from a totally different century mm -hmm. than some of the old ones. And it's just because the old ones are so hard to adapt to the changing need. Uh, but I think you know, it, it's obvious where it's going if you see that. And it's—it is. I think Ari's point is super well made. Yeah. It's. It's taking that um, that that enjoyment, that social space, and carrying it into a different environment where it maybe didn't used to be the case. And I, I always think of the, in the UK, the guys that run the polo were years ahead of their time. They used to run the classic hospitality that you know Barclays were taking their clients to, which was absolutely ahead. beautiful to sit down tables. Yeah. On the other side, yeah. they had a nightclub hosting. Uh, 400 yeah. marquee strong party for 18 to 25 year olds you know and and getting it sponsored one of them it was Mickey. it was the nightclub from london and they were charging a fortune but it was it meant they were attracting a crowd who would never have come and sat on the other side well. and it was fine put them on the other side of the pitch let them do what they like and their ability to maximize the audience right. and what they were putting on was was amazing. And I, that was a great example where they literally just took a place these people went socially and brought it to their bed. I always thought it was just genius. So with that in mind, we'll start to wrap up, but I'll ask two questions. The first is, what's your favorite personal hospitality experience or let's say sports experience? It doesn't need to be a hospitality experience. And then What's your favorite sporting moment from the past week? Which is the question that we always close the podcast with. So I'll start with, uh, I'll start with Ari. Um, and, and, and I'm hoping that your favorite sport moment, sporting moment of the week involves something that happened in St. Bart's. Well, I was going to say, going back to, I no longer think it's all about the content. Uh, I wiped out hardcore surfing the other day. That was my favorite moment. And it was in front of like Ooh. the girlfriend, you know, she's like clapping and all of a sudden she's like, is he alive? You know, so it, it was one of those moments. Um, but I want to say one serious thing going back to like the cost. I'm sorry to digress, Yanni, but you know, I'm, I'm good at this. We, the, if you think about the Go for ship groups that are starting to come into the ecosystem, you know, if you think about sports teams mm -hmm. historically, they're really sort of the trophy asset of like wealthy business people who then sort of had a dynastic vision for the team. Well, I'll pass it down to my son, daughter, next generation. 
I think with private equity money, institutional money coming in, and actually really super professionalizing what are historically these multi-billion dollar brands, but at the end of the day, we're sort of local dysfunctional family organizations and, and really institutionalizing them. Nathan, to your point, I think this is where this idea of what investments do I make up to a billion dollars to revamp my venue, to revamp the experience is happening more and more and more. Think about like the Todd Bowleys of the world, the Harris Blitzers of the world, the Mubadalas of the world. I think they're rethinking that. But going back to, again, favorite sports moments, it's not from a week ago, but I thought this World Cup final was the most incredible I've seen in a lifetime. And it's stuck in my brain how incredible that was. I'll leave it at that. Quite quite the match. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think I, I, I think everybody in the world outside of France was rooting for Argentina and Messi. So uh, a quite, quite, quite a popular global result. Nathan? Uh, one event that I haven't been to a few years now because I'm too old and... Uh, but Dubai, I used to get the Dubai 7s, the Rugby 7s. Absolutely <laughs> amazing. The perfect example of an event that was run for several thousand people to get together and have a wonderful time together. And yes, there was some great sport going on in the middle, but the event and the way it was set up and the brands that were involved and the activation all just led to a brilliant day out. Yeah. And if you wanted to watch some of that incredible rugby, you could. But it, you know, that, that delivered Kaiwa four or five years while I had friends there. It was the best example for me of world-class sport, but surrounded by something that wasn't built with the sport in mind. It was built with the experience in mind, um, clearly. Yeah. Um, I probably had two, two big ups and downs on sport. The magic of the FA Cup came to bite me because my team got beat by the, by the underdog with two goals in the last <laughs> minute. So I didn't enjoy the magic of the FA Cup so much other than, uh, other than it is good it happens, but not when it's your team. Um, but yeah, the best moment of my week was watching my uh, seven-year-old score a top corner belter, uh, much to my surprise, and I think it is, uh, <laughs> on a pretty muddy pitch. So, you know, I think that seeing him and, you know, I grew up playing a lot of sport and, you know, team sport, and I think seeing him start to realise just how brilliant that is and, and loving that sensation is, uh, yeah, I'd I'd like to say that happens to me regularly these days, but my knees are gone, so you have to now start to live vicariously through your kids. But yeah, seeing his face when that ball went in was uh, definitely my moment of the week to me. I, th I think we're more likely to injure ourselves celebrating their goals than we are actually practicing any sport anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, this has been a, a fabulous chat. Thank you very much uh, to both of you for making the time. Thank you to our listeners for uh, tuning in and downloading the podcast. Please do remember to give us a like and a subscribe if you like what you hear. Uh, everyone helps. And uh, to go to our website, sportsoft.co, and sign up for our newsletter where you can get more news uh, on a weekly basis about what's going on in the world of technology and sports and entertainment. All that remains for me is to say a big thank you to our two guests. Nathan, thank you very much for joining us on the Sportsoft podcast. Pleasure, Yanni. Good to be here. And Ari, thank you very much for joining us again and for making the time from uh, sunny St. Bart's. Great to have you on again. Always great to be here. Nathan, nice to meet you. And Yanni, it's always fun. Thank you. Always great. Uh, to all our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time in the Sports Loft. Thank you very much, and goodbye.